I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Today's episode is really quite remarkable. Uh, first of all, it's because of who our guest is. It's not often I'm going to be having former presidents on this show. And Juan Manuel Santos was the president of Colombia for eight years. He also won the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2016 for his very courageous work trying to bring and successfully bringing a long civil war in Colombia involving the FARC to a successful end. And he's been outspoken on issues like the environment and free speech. So there's so many reasons. I've admired uh, President Santos over all these years. And one thing he did when he stepped down just shortly after in 2018, he joined a very distinguished group called the Global Commission on Drug Policy, 
which is a group of former presidents and other world leaders who have decided the war on drugs is doing a lot more harm than good. Half of its members, of its two dozen members or so, are former presidents. Kofi Annan, the former head of the United Nations, used to be on it till his death. George Shultz and Paul Volcker, the American statesmen, were on it till their recent passing. But a remarkable group. So, President Santos, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you, Ethan, and I'm very, very glad to be here with you. Uh, we've known each other for some years, and I'm very glad to participate in your program. Thank you. Yes, I, we we had a, a really <laughs> very interesting meeting for me back in 2012 when things were re really heating up, and I visited you in your office in Bogota, and we had a frank conversation about the developments then. But I want to start off by asking you first, you joined the Global Commission a few years ago. Tell me why you did that and why you made that one of your priorities after leaving office. Well, I come from a country which perhaps is the country that has suffered most in this uh, world war on drugs. Colombia, for years, for decades, have been fighting uh, this war, uh, and we have uh, sacrificed our best leaders, our best journalists, our best uh, judges at a terrible cost. And we are still the number one exporter of cocaine to the world markets. And my experience fighting drugs suffered sort of, a, of an evolution. I was a very hardliner. I was minister of defense before being president. We sprayed the coca plantations. We interdicted uh, many, many thousands of tons of drugs. We went after the money of the drug traffickers. We went after the consumers, and we went after the peasants who were growing marijuana and the coca plants. And we did that uh, with tremendous intensity with the help of the U.S. The U.S. provided funds and provided uh, airplanes and provided helicopters. And uh, we continued to have the problem. The same thing has happened to the world. We declared universally the war on drugs in 1971 in the United Nations and President Nixon, and we still have the problem. So I started to learn that we were doing the wrong thing. I call it like in a static bicycle. You pedal, you pedal, you pedal, and you look to the right, you look to the left, and you're in the same place. So a war that has been going on for 50 years that has not been won, it's a war that has been lost. So you have to change your strategy. You have to change your mind frame. And so I started to change my mind frame. And now I am convinced that the only way to control the negative consequences of drug trafficking is by regulating and legalizing. That's the way to take out the money from the hands of the mafias and use it to fight uh, the consumption of drugs, but with an approach uh, of a public health issue. I also use very often an anecdote that I read in one of the recent uh, biographies of Winston Churchill. Back in the 20s, during Prohibition, Churchill went through Canada and landed in California. And he asked for a drink. And they said to him, no, no, Mr. Churchill, uh, this is prohibited here in the United States. And with that tremendous sense of humor that he had, 
he said, how strange this country is. These huge profits that come out of the sale of liquor, you give them to the mafias. In my country, we give it to the treasury. <laughs> that encapsulates what I think has to be done in the war on drugs. And in my country, I have seized the largest amount of coke and marijuana in the history. I have extradited the largest number of Colombians to the U.S. in history, more than 1,400 Colombians extradited to the United States. And I am now convinced that all this sacrifice, all this effort is in vain because we still today have the same problem as we had five, 10, 15, 20, or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So we have to change. So with that introduction, now I'm going to put you just a little bit on the spot personal. Of course. So, um, you know, the Global Commission, I just think, has done an extraordinary job of opening up the debate and taking bold positions in favor of legal regulation. And some people will say, well, you know, all these prestigious presidents, why didn't they just do the right thing when they were in office? Now they're coming around to it. And, and of course, you know, I think it's better that they do it even after office than just continuing to pretend that having done what they did was right. But the other thing is that many of the members of the Global Commission say what you just said, right? Which is, well, I was believed in the war on drugs when I was president, and then I came to see it didn't work. But I'll, I'll tell you something funny. So one of your predecessors, Cesar Gaviria, right, former Colombian president on the commission, and I remember back in 1990 when he was the president-elect, and there's a meeting organized for him in Miami with a bunch of drug policy experts, and I'm part of that. And I push him on the issue of drug legalization regulation. And first he dismisses me, blows me off, etc. And finally he looks at me and he goes, Eaton, of course I agree that legalization is, my, is in my country's interest. But the day I say the word, the next day the U.S. invades me by which I think he meant they would cut off coffee exports. But I mean, there was a sense in which he knew better. And just to finish this off, you know, in 1998, there was a big United Nations General Assembly special session on drugs. And it was a crazy event. They were talking about a drug-free world, we can do it, all this crazy rhetoric. And so I drafted a public letter to, to Kofi Annan, who was then the Secretary General. And it basically called for major reform, major rethinking, didn't call for legalization, but big rethinking. And we got a half a dozen people from Colombia to sign that letter. And one of them was the former president, Betancourt. Another one was his foreign minister, Augusto Ramirez Ocampo. And another one was a part-time politician who was then running a good governance foundation named Juan Manuel Santos. So I don't know if you remember this, President Santos, but you signed that letter back in 98 saying the drug war is failing and it cannot work. So, Well, Ethan, <laughs> I am proud to say, I don't want to sound presumptuous, but I was the only head of state that as head of state, back in the year 2012, started to talk about legalization, started to talk about changing the war on drugs. And I found a good partner. I found President Obama that said to me, you know, you are right. And so I said, why don't we start, because this is a, an issue that one country by itself cannot solve. This has to be a, an international issue. Why don't we start trying to assemble a special 
General Assembly in the United Nations that would address this problem. But before that, we started to work at a regional level. This started in the America Summit that was held in Cartagena in the year 2012. And I announced it publicly that we were going to start a crusade to change the war on drugs. In a general assembly of the OAS, by unanimous vote, they supported uh, the call for a special general assembly of the United Nations to address this issue. What happened? I underestimated the reaction that we were going to find from other areas of the world. The Chinese, the Russians, uh, the Middle Eastern countries, mm -hmm. they were all very much opposed. So unfortunately, this General Assembly, in a way, was a failure. We managed to make a little progress of introducing public health as an issue, human rights as an issue. But what I wanted was the United Nations to change uh, the paradigm, and we failed. And why? I have a, a theory and my own experience. When uh, President Gaviria told you they will crucify me in my country, he was right. Not only because at that time the U.S. was with the policy of hardline, punitive treatment to the war on drugs, but also because this is a very sensitive political issue and very easy to manipulate. What happened when I started talking about legalization in Colombia? My political adversaries, among them the former president Uribe, started to tell all the housewives that I was proposing to poison their kids with drugs, that that was going to be uh, the consequences of my proposal. I used to go to different assemblies and the women were furious. Why do, why do you want to poison my kids? And I said, what do you mean? And said, why do you want to legalize drugs? And it was very interesting because I said, okay, let, let's talk about it. And I, I asked many of them, listen to me, you are a mother. And uh, if your kid is caught with drugs, would you prefer uh, your son or daughter to go to jail or to go to an institution to rehabilitate her or him if they are addicts? 99% said the second, rehabilitation. And I said, that's precisely what I'm proposing. And they said, ah, why don't you explain that a bit more? Mm -hmm. Now I understand. But the immediate reaction uh, for many people, the assuming a hardline position is very popular. Let's kill the drug traffickers. Let's hang them. Let's crucify them and everybody applauds. The other issue, it's much more difficult because it's another type of leadership. It's the same, Ethan, as making war and making peace. Making war, what type of leadership do you need? You need a leadership that is uh, vertical. You give orders. You rally the forces around you. You satanize and accuse your adversary. And so you're a good leader making war. Making peace needs a completely different type of leadership, more horizontal. Instead of giving orders, you have to persuade, you have to educate. And for example, in the peace process that I uh, had, persuading a mother to forgive the people who raped and killed their daughter is very difficult. Mm -hmm. But it's the type of leadership that you need 
to change the paradigm in the war on drugs. And you have to persevere. And we're making progress. We are making progress. You see uh, in the United States, which had the most hardline position, many of the states in the United States have the marijuana legalized. And you go to Europe and uh, they're more and more convinced that this is uh, the way to go. And we need to persevere and hopefully accelerate the work we're doing, for example, in the World Commission on Drugs. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, President, I was really following what you were doing and saying back then very closely. And I was extraordinarily impressed because I knew already back then that you were thinking along these lines and were looking for opportunities. And I remember a few months before I saw you in your office, I went to see President Calderon in Mexico in his office. And, you know, here he is leading this major war on drugs, credible violence, taking on the narcos. But I also know that he had been saying some things like maybe we need to look at alternatives to the prohibitionist approach. And then that summit that you described in Cartagena of the Americans, how you handled that so beautifully, giving Otto Perez, the Guatemalan former general president, a chance to present, then giving President Obama a chance to respond and thereby show there was some opening of space. So I thought you were really being masterful in moving this forward in the midst of everything else that was going on. Yeah, because it's such a sensitive issue. And people who are in power... The first thing they'd want to do is rock the boat if there's a danger that the boat might uh, capsize. <laughs> and these type of issues, it's better to not uh, uh, address them, especially when you are also dependent on other countries. Mm-hmm. This is one of the circumstances that we have to live with, is that since this is a multinational problem, it's a, a traffic that is multinational, well, you need a multinational solution. And uh, that is why people in power sort of are reluctant to start uh, the process of changing. But fortunately, we have more and more people that have realized this is the way to go. It's almost as if, because in a way, the situation of Colombia or Mexico or Guatemala or so many other countries is being stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? On the one hand, a global illegal commodities market in which you are in the middle and there's no way to really prohibit it effectively. And on the other hand, these massive political pressures, both domestically and internationally. And I remember like one of the options was almost like imagining for Guatemala in this case, if we could only build a pipeline. Right. So that all the cocaine coming out of Colombia, going through Central America, could essentially go through a Guatemalan pipeline, pop out the other end without all the corruption and all the black market. And maybe they could just tax it. But of course, that was just a hypothetical and something that was a political impossibility. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. 
I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you, here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I look at Colombia, I mean, Colombia really, I guess if you look at all the countries in the world that have been highly associated with drug trafficking and drug murders and drug crime and drug politics, why is drugs in Colombia so fundamentally caught up with modern Colombia history over the last 50 years? Why do you think? Well, I think it's a combination of how we have a great entrepreneurs. We have an ideal country from the geography point of view for marijuana and coca. We became, because of our uh, special circumstances, producers of marijuana and of cocaine, and the geography helped very much uh, to expand the production. 
And we had this war with the FARC, with the guerrillas, and the guerrillas controlled huge amounts of territory and they benefit from the drug trafficking. They said that they were not drug traffickers, but that they taxed the drug traffickers and they financed their war with the proceeds of drug trafficking. So it's a combination of different circumstances. And they say that the, the way that we started uh, exporting the first exports of drugs in Colombia was marijuana from a region called the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which is a beautiful region, and that a Swedish ship arrived in the port of Santa Marta full of American sailors that had been in Vietnam, and that they, they have heard of this Santa Marta gold, which was the best marijuana in the, girl, in the world, and they asked somebody there, do you have marijuana, the Santa Marta gold? Of course, so what do you need? And said, can you bring me a pack? And they brought a pack and he was going to pay uh, $10. And they said, no, oh, no, it's 10 pesos. He said, is that cheap? <laughs> so they bought all the production, <laughs> put it in the Swedish ship. And the legend says, this is the first big export of marijuana. In that part of, the, of Colombia, that's the part where previously during the Spanish and the British, the pirates used to be uh, very much present. So there was a culture of contraband there. And so the marijuana traffic became more and more important. And suddenly from another part of Colombia called Medellin, where our industry grew because they are very uh, effective entrepreneurs, they started to discover that there was also a market in the U.S., in Los Angeles, in New York for cocaine. The, the coca plantations were in Bolivia and in Peru, and they came through Colombia. They had some laboratories and were exported. But they found out that uh, a kilo of cocaine was much more profitable than a, ki a kilo of marijuana. But the logistics of taking a kilo of coca and a kilo of marijuana to the United States market were the same. So they started switching or adding of the roots that they had in the marijuana exports the cocaine. And that grew and grew and grew. And what the Guatemalan was saying to you, the Central American countries became sort of uh, places to export to those countries and then re-export. And uh, that was a great business. And that also contaminated the mafias there, the criminal bands there, the corruption there, and the problem they have right now. Mm -hmm. All of Central America is huge. Well, there was also, you left out one drug. I mean, there was a period, I think, be right before you became president in 2010. Heroin. I'm a All of the world, right, was getting their heroin from Afghanistan, but yeah. the United States, most of it was coming from Colombia yes. for about a decade till Mexico displaced it. And I was curious. I never quite understood that. Was it just that the Mexican traffickers were decided they'd rather just grow it themselves and ship it and cut out the Colombians? Or was there actually a su successful suppression effort? Was there it was just simple market dynamics? and lower cost of production in Mexico? I remember, I remember that uh, in the early part of my government, the police uh, took me to a place in the south of Colombia to eradicate supposedly the last hectare of Amapola in Colombia. I did that and I showed the, the, the flower and I said, uh, this is the last hectare. Well, it wasn't the last. And as long as you have uh, demand, you will have supply. But yes, this very effective suppression because the production of Amapola was very much concentrated. And because the guerrillas did not control uh, that region, 
we were able to be more effective. But mm -hmm. immediately, immediately, the balloon effect, they went to Mexico. And Mexico was much closer to the U.S., so they became much more efficient in providing mm -hmm. uh, heroin than Colombia. Well, now there's something else interesting and actually very complimentary about Colombia, which is obviously Peru has gone through terrible problems, right? They had the Shining Pass, Sendero Luminoso, guerrilla group, not unlike the FARC or others, that was a real threat. Uh, Mexico has had major problems over the years. Bolivia was almost a coca, you know, empire in some respects. But one of the things that I noticed in Colombia was the extent to which not just intellectuals, but even politicians would at one moment or another step out and say, we need something different. Why in your country and not in these others does this happen? That's a good question. That's a good question. Well, I think that our, our democracy is uh, a bit stronger than the democracy in other countries. And uh, the cost of being controversial might be not as, as high politically. And because I think we've suffered more from the drug war than the other countries. The other countries, they were very, very much concentrated. You didn't see in, in Lima the effects of the exportation of coca from Peru to Colombia or to the United States. In Colombia, you start to see the effects of the drug trafficking also in the cities, in Medellin, in Cartagena, in Bogota, uh, and the, the violence that generated the big, very strong, invincible drug cartels. Remember the Medellin cartel, the Cali cartel? Mm -hmm. They were taking over the country. We reacted against that at a very high cost because we were feeling how they were just destroying the country, destroying our democracy. That did not happen in Peru or in other countries because uh, it was a much more low-profile mafias mm -hmm. that did not want to take over the country but want to simply run their business. So, President Sal, let me ask you, if I can, about some of your relationships with other Latin American leaders on this drug issue. I mean, with the exception of the hard left, you know, Castro in Cuba, uh, you know, Nicaragua uh, uh, and Venezuela, which are totally opposed to any drug reform, as far as I could see, you would have support across the spectrum. And so here you have, um, we mentioned before Otto Perez Molina, a right wing former general. But what about, did you ever discuss this issue with Mujica, the former left-wing guerrilla and who became president of Uruguay, who was just focused on marijuana? Or with Abel Morales, who was the left-wing leader, former coca union leader, who you know would go to the United Nations meetings and chew coca, but never seemed to get all that involved? What were your conversations with guys like that about? Well, during the America summit, my approach to diplomacy was very different from the approach that my predecessor had. Remember that we had a very hard confrontation with Venezuela and with Ecuador. Mm -hmm. And when I came, became president, uh, I was thinking about the peace process. So I said, listen, in diplomacy, you need to talk. And so I started talking to Chavez, to the Ecuadorian uh, president, to everybody, Lula and Mojica and Evo Morales. And those were the ones that supported uh, in the OAS, the resolution calling for a change in the drug war. Today, unfortunately, you will not find that support because, for example, in Brazil, you have now a, a very hardliner, Bolsonaro, in mm -hmm. the presidency, 
and he uh, prefers this approach of punitive hardline war against drugs because that sounds politically correct. And so he's not going to uh, risk the possibility of sacrificing popularity, uh, changing his views. And so we have seen a shift to the right in Latin America against the progressive stance vis-a-vis -vis the drug traffic. That's what mm -hmm. I feel. But yes, I did speak to them. Chavez at that time was very much in favor. Really? Very much in favor. Huh. Yes. I think what has happened in Venezuela is that the drug trafficking has become, become a part of their economy. But at that time, that did not happen. So when Chavez did support that, and he thought that that was the the, the uh, correct way, also because he see, he saw it as an anti-imperialist stand, <laughs> the same as Evo Morales. Uh, now this is this is this war on drugs is an imposition of the U.S. of the empire, no? uh, and uh, so for different political reasons. But I remember having long talks about this issue because uh, when you are convinced about something that has the consequences that we've seen in the last decades and we're still having the consequences today, you sort of uh, become passionate about, about the issue and that's what has happened mm -hmm. to me among many issues with this issue. Well, you know, it's funny when you tell me the story about your conversation with Chavez, I remember hearing that when the Guatemalan president, Otto Perez, was talking to the other Central American presidents, and there was some interest in Honduras and El Salvador, etc., Costa Rica. And then he talked to Ortega in, um, in Nicaragua. Uh, Nicaragua. And I heard what Ortega's response to Otto Perez was, look, if you're doing this to get money from the gringos, I totally support it. If you're serious, forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it was just a kind of cynical kind of response. What about with Calderon, the Mexican president? Calderon, who's a good friend of mine, and we became very good friends, mm -hmm. and we still are friends. He was elected president with the banner of hardline position against the drug cartels. That was his one of the issues that got him elected. So this could be interpreted as a shift. But he went along. Even though he was reluctant, he supported the resolution. But he was not very much convinced that that was the, the route. Well, I remember my conversation with him. It seemed like he got the basic logic of why prohibition was doomed to failure. But he was so preoccupied with fighting the narcos and the frustrations of that, that he felt there was nothing in between at all. Um, I think, in fact, he, in one of the last speeches he ever gave as president, when he went up to the UN at the end of 2012, he may have been one of the first, if not the first president, to use the phrase drug prohibition to refer to that, which was an interesting step out. And what about about his successor, uh, Peña Nieto, Enrique Peña Nieto? Peña Nieto was quite open, was, was quite uh, collaborative in, in, in this stand. However, however, people who surround him, people from the army, from the navy, they had another stand. It was very difficult, for example, even to get a, a an agreement that uh, we've been uh, working, Peña Nieto and myself, for the two navies to collaborate uh, interdicting drugs in the sea. Uh, the Mexican Navy was not very, very enthusiastic about it. And I always thought, why? I mean, what is the question? And sometimes life converts you into a Voltairean. Voltaire used to say, think uh, bad about something and you might be right. And so I was always puzzled 
with the people around Peña Nieto on this particular issue. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you frame it that way, because I remember for many years, the spraying of the coca crops with glyphosate, the uh, uh, herbicide er you know, eradicating agent, was a very controversial issue. And I talked a few days ago with a friend of mine, uh, Alejandro Gaviria, your former minister of health. And he told me about meeting with you to discuss this issue about ending, just ending the aerial eradication, even though there was huge U.S. pressure to keep it going. And you simply said, yes, let's do it. Why had you, I mean, there was going to be political fallout from my government. Why were you so ready to do that then? Because what I told you at the beginning, uh, my experience convinced me that that didn't work and that the consequences of spraying were terrible in terms of the environment, in terms of public health. And we even had a big row with Ecuador. Ecuador took us to the International Court of Justice. Uh, sued Colombia, and we were going to we were going to lose uh, that uh, legal battle. But the 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 main reason is that it did not work. You sprayed, and uh, immediately those campesinos went and replanted, or they even uh, invented ways to protect themselves from spraying. There's something called panela, which which is which is uh, extracted from sugar. And they put panela on the leaves, and uh, the spray did nothing to them. Uh, so it didn't work, and had terrible consequences. And when uh, uh, Alejandro Gaviria and I said, "Really, it's not working," oh, what would the United say? Uh, what would they say? And I said, uh, "Well, I don't care what what they say. I think it's the correct thing to do." Are you convinced, Minister? And uh, he said, "Yes." Well, I'm convinced also. Let's finish it. Of course, it's a big reaction. They still, today, they say that Colombia is producing coca and has increased the production of coca because of that decision. That is absolutely nonsense. It's not because of that decision. And so, yes, I took the decision, convinced that I was doing the correct thing, and uh, that was about uh, eight years ago. I am still convinced mm -hmm. that that is correct, the correct decision. And the worst mistake, and I've said this publicly, that President Duque can do right now, and he's thinking of, of re-establishing uh, the spray because you, you will have uh, all these peasants who, if they don't have an alternative, they will die to continue to give food to their children. And that's why in the peace agreement, we included substituting coca for legal crops. And let me give you a comparison. If you eradicate by force or you spray, the rate of replanting goes up to 60-70%. So after eradicating, they go and replant. We started after the peace process was signed, a very aggressive and ambitious program of voluntary substitution. We paid the families and we gave them instruments to plant something else that was legal. And the United Nations verified how much replanting occurred with that policy, and the replanting was less than 1%. So you see the difference, up to 70%, 7-0, and less than 1%. Mm -hmm. That's the way to do it. Well, let me challenge you on this a bit, okay? Because I, I have huge admiration for what you did with the FARC agreement, obviously. And it contained, obviously, an entire chapter about drugs. And obviously, investing in the livelihoods of the campesinos was crucial. But when it comes to the big global picture, 
it's not going to affect the drug problem or the global cocaine markets, right? Because even if you get 100,000 campesinos switching out of coca, they'll just be replaced by people elsewhere in Colombia, Bolivia, Peru, maybe Ecuador. So for Colombia, it may have been crucial. But globally, it's a wash. I agree with you. That's because of the balloon effect. Yes. If you continue to have a demand for marijuana or for cocaine or for heroin, in the consuming countries, you will have the supply. This is the, the contrary of what the economists uh, uh, name the, the, the Say's Law. This is uh, uh, French uh, economists. That mm-hmm. the, the, the production creates its own demand. Well, in this case, the demand creates its own production. So, mm-hmm. And it's so profitable that, yes, if we were able to eradicate all the production of cocaine in Colombia, you will immediately see and you're seeing it in other parts of the world, in Asia and in Indonesia. And that has been the history of this issue since the Opium Wars. Mm-hmm. That has been the reality. Uh, the problem is that sometimes because of political reasons, global leaders and uh, global politicians don't like to accept that. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I call my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things I take pride in from my work in the U.S. is that we really initiated the whole, I mean, the question becomes, how could it be that the United States, which championed the drug war domestically and globally for almost 100 years, nonetheless became the global leader in marijuana legalization? And a lot of that started with a very strategic approach with legalizing medical marijuana in California in 1996, and then continuing to other states and beginning to change the dialogue, and, you know, and then ultimately resulting in first Colorado and Washington in 2012 and other states. And I look in Latin America now, and I see that that's one of the few drug reform issues which seems to be moving forward all around the continent. And I think you played a key role in making Colombia one of the leaders in this. Yes. And for example, nobody would have imagined that that would happen in Mexico and did. In Colombia, unfortunately, the current government is very conservative and very hardliner, and they start to go back. They started to criminalize, again, the consumption of drugs. And there's one exact date that I I use a lot as as an example to tell the Colombians to open their eyes. The 3rd of November, when President Biden was elected, eight states in the United States legalized marijuana. That same day, the Colombian House of Representatives, because of the pressure of the government rejected a law to do the same thing. And so what is the consequence of this? The money stays in the US, that's why I tell uh, my fellow Colombians, and the violence stays here in Colombia. You're exporting, you're you're being stupid uh, by not legalizing it. We are much more efficient producers of marijuana than the Californians or, or in Colorado or, or in Oregon. And when you prohibit it here, you will continue with the violence and the mafias, and the, the United States is legalizing it. But another issue here is how do you explain a campesino who grows marijuana that he is doing something illegal and he has to go to jail if you have the United States legalizing it? They, they tell you, is, is that not stupid? It is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the reality. 
I remember after we legalized marijuana in Colorado and Washington, reading the papers, President Santos condemns the U.S. for their, their hypocrisy. Here you are legalizing your own country and still expecting us to keep eradicating the plants on our own. And I think, I mean, I guess in a way what happened in Colorado and Washington, and then I guess Mohica and Uruguay really did help open up space to move this issue forward. And even your successor, Duque, is being respectful on the medical marijuana piece, right? Yes, yes, because, and, and no, and, and the pressure has been a big pressure because uh, a lot of companies started to invest uh, in, in Colombia and they said you, you can't just go go back. So with the medical marijuana, uh, he had been much more positive. Mm -hmm. But for recreational purposes, he's still very, very reluctant. But so, I, now, I, I have a, yeah. because they, they, they asked me, uh, I have a much more radical stand. I think we, ha we have to legalize the coca. Uh, production. No, I know that we're years from that, but also we need to regulate and legalize all the drugs because otherwise, if you if you prohibit the word prohibition is the the key word. If you prohibit, you you create all kinds of terrible collateral damages. So as we're speaking, it's the middle of May, uh, and we don't know what will happen by the time people hear this in the summer. But there is a cocaine, a very thoughtful cocaine legalization bill in the Congress uh, the, of Colombia now, right? It's one that would, you know, allow the coca products to be sold openly and make cocaine, powder cocaine, strictly regulated and not allow crack cocaine to be sold, but decriminalized. So are you able and are you willing to be speaking out in favor of this bill? Are you I, I, hesitant to? I have what? already spoken in favor of this right. bill. But unfortunately, I don't see that uh, this bill will pass. No, it's a beginning, though. It's a beginning, yes. I think we have to try again, explain much more. Uh, the, the word is to, to teach the Colombians uh, why this is good, because the image that they have, they say, this is terrible. This president is poisoning Colombian kids. Well, you need to do a, mm -hmm. a big effort to explain that it's the contrary, <laughs> that we are, we are, we are, Doing something to to uh, benefit uh, many of the kids that today, for example, are in the criminal bands because of drug trafficking or addicts. Uh, this is precisely to address this issue with much more humane and effective approach. So a question I ask virtually all my guests, and I'm going to ask you, let me frame it in this way. When President Obama wrote his first autobiography, he talked about having been a young man smoking marijuana, trying a little cocaine. Uh, so if you were writing your autobiography and being open about what your own past experience was, what is your own past experience with these substances that have been illegal? The same as Obama's. Uh -huh. I, I uh, smoked my first joint of marijuana in Kansas, <laughs> the University of Kansas. And uh, the first time I tried uh, coke was here in Colombia. Uh, but uh, so my answer is, I follow Obama. I see. Okay. <laughs> and a, another question, Colombia, really, in some respects, I don't know if you've ever heard of the, a professor named Richard Schultes. He was the famous Harvard, oh, yes. the, the godfather of ethnobotany. Yes, he, and, he, was, he was the mentor of Wade Davis. That's right. That's right. Who's a great writer on these issues. And what I've heard is that Colombia probably contains more natural, psychoactive, natural substances and plants. And part of this is part of the indigenous culture in Colombia. And now we're seeing this blossoming of psychedelics research and also a desire to include, you know, the native populations in this. I'm curious, how aware are you of this, of this tradition in Colombia and what its implications might be? 
Well, again, uh, late in life, I have been learning about the uh, the wisdom of the indigenous communities. I, I had an experience with them when I was Minister of Defense. There was a, this friend of mine who was after my Minister of the Environment who took me to uh, talk to the indigenous communities uh, in the high mountains of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. Uh, but he said, as minister, you can, you can, because of the war, their leaders had not been able to come together for, for a long time. Uh, you can help them come together simply by picking them up and bringing them into this place, this beautiful place high in the mountain. So I did that and I went there with my family, my wife and my three kids. And these uh, governors, they're called, of, uh, or the mamos, arrived and they said to me, uh, we have to speak among ourselves before, and then we'll speak to you. Well, I thought it was one hour, two hours. They spent 30 hours talking and, and, and chewing coca. They call it mambian, chewing coca for 30 hours. And then they called me in. And they start to explain to me all their culture, all their uh, their philosophies, uh, their their vision about justice, and especially their vision about the environment, and how they are our older brothers. So I was very much impressed with them, and I started to to hear them more. And when I got inaugurated as president, the day I was inaugurated, I went to them and uh, asked for their permission because they are our older brothers, as a gesture to recognize them as the indigenous communities that were here before anybody. I asked for their blessing to go to Congress and be inaugurated. And they said, yes. And they gave me a mandate. They said, you must make peace, but not only among people, among human beings. You must make peace with nature because we have a disconnection with nature. And you, unfortunately, are going to suffer because she is mad. And when she is mad, we all suffer the consequences. And one week later, Ethan, one week later after I got it decorated, Colombia was hit by the worst Nina phenomenon uh, in the history of Colombia, the, the worst natural disaster. The first year I was in office, the first year and a half, was administering a flooded country. So I became engaged with them. And they started to teach me about the environment, about how rich our environment in Colombia is and how we had to protect it. And that's why we put in place very aggressive environmental policies to protect our biodiversity, to protect our rivers, to protect these ecosystems that are only in Colombia. Uh, and uh, I am now convinced that we have to hear these indigenous communities all around the world, not only in Colombia, because they have more wisdom. If we hadn't heard them before, we were not facing this existential threat which is climate change. Mm -hmm. And they have been saying this for a long, long time. Well, Juan Manuel Santos, that's a beautiful way to conclude our conversation on the wisdom of the indigenous people. So thank you ever so much for taking this time to have this conversation. And I look forward to our paths crossing before long. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Edelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Edelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Avivit Bar Yosef 
Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Next time on Psychoactive, I'll be talking with Dr. Nora Volkow, who has headed the National Institute on Drug Abuse since 2003. That's the lead research funding agency in the world about drugs. I have to say, I was a bit surprised she accepted my invitation to join us, so this should be a particularly good episode. There's one issue, I think, going back a number of years ago, where if I pat myself on the back, I think I was more right than you were, which is people were saying, if you're going to legalize marijuana, you're going to see this explosion in adolescent use of marijuana and problematic use. You were right. I was expecting that use of marijuana among adolescents would go up, and overall, it hasn't. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.